welcome to the first of three question and answer sessions uh, that Curio are hosting to support London Tech Week. Uh, I'm Rob Jack, I'm a learning designer at Curio, and today it's my great pleasure to be speaking uh, with a good friend of Curio, uh, Martin Bean, Chief Executive of The Bean Centre. And specifically, How are you, Martin Rob? Lovely I... to see you. Likewise, Martin. Always good to connect. Um, now, specifically today, Martin and I are going to be looking at how technology is enabling the formation of digital credential networks and how we might expect these networks to impact the way that learners gain qualifications in the future. Um, but before we do start that conversation, let me give you a bit of history about our guest today. So Martin, as I say, is a, a good friend of Curio and he's the CEO of the Bean Center, an organization founded in 2021 with a single mission to partner with visionary education experts, breakthrough technology companies and future thinking education providers to create a future that works. Now through the Bean Center and drawing on his deep knowledge of the intersection of technology and education, Martin provides strategic advice to educational organizations of all types, private, public, and community. Martin was previously appointed Vice Chancellor and President of RMIT University in 2014 and served until June 2021. It was at RMIT that Martin first collaborated with Curio and created one of Australia's most successful digital education institutions, RMIT Online. In the UK, Martin previously held the positions of Vice-Chancellor of the Open University, uh, the UK's largest academic institution and leader in the provision, provision of flexible learning. He was also General Manager of Microsoft Education Products Group in Seattle, Washington. Uh, he has held various ex executive leadership roles in companies focused on integrating technology and learning solutions. In 2012, Martin launched FutureLearn, the UK's first at-scale provider of massive open online courses. He's been widely recognized by his peers, industry, and governments in Australia, the US, and the UK for his contribution to education. Martin was awarded an honorary doctor of laws from the University of London in 2013, and a commander of the order of the British Empire, a CBE, in 2015 for services to higher education. So that is an introduction done with. Welcome, Martin. Now, Thank you very much, Robin. Hi, everybody. It's, it's great to have you with us, Martin. Uh, to kick us off, you're going to take us through a presentation uh, outlining some of your thoughts on our topic today, and then I think we'll, we'll move into a Q&A, right? Yeah, that's terrific. And if I can just start by um, just welcoming everybody that's found the time to be with us today, it's terrific to be dropping back into my old neck of the woods in the, in the UK. Uh, what uh, Rob and I thought might be a, a good thing to do would be just to start off, if we could, with a few opening thoughts uh, from me and doing the right thing in the world of Zoom. Rob, can you see that slide up now in front of us? I certainly can. Thank you, Martin. Very good. So I, I thought I might just spend a few minutes with all of you, just taking you through the backdrop to my to my thinking. And, and as a way of acknowledgement, a huge call out to my friends and colleagues at RMIT that have helped me put some of this thinking together. Um, as as I've sort of my, my thinking's evolved really all the way back to when we launched our future learn many years ago, Rob, that you you touched on. So just a, a few provocations to get us started. Um, it's really clear no matter what data point you look at, this one is from uh, The Economist and Oxford University, but the numbers change a little bit, but roughly we're looking at a world where 50% of jobs are at risk of replacement in the next 20 years. We're also in a world where today's 15-year-olds, and I have one uh, in the house with me right now, will likely have to navigate 17 changes in employer across their lifetime in, in five different careers. That's uh, according to the Foundation 
for young Australians here. But but that 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 general theme and pattern of change in our communities and societies, I see rippled all around the world. Uh, a major shift in the way I think about the future of work is that two thirds of jobs will be soft skills intensive by 2030, and that's a shift that shift that's happened incredibly rapidly over the last the last few years. And and one of the pieces of work that I'm involved in that I'm very proud of is PwC's Future of Work Initiative in Australia. And, and I think this quote sums up my thinking uh, very well. We need to think differently about our skills, how we couple with new technologies, and most importantly, how we keep up. Our humanity, integrity, and creativity are key. And I, uh, I, I see that play out in so many ways in the labor market now. And, and therefore, I, I sort of look at two different worlds. The world at the top, my world, born in 1964, life was pretty predictable for me. I got to play from zero to five. I got to learn from five to 25. I got to then have a job from 25 to 65. And then from 65 plus, I got to retire uh, and start playing again, or as I like to think of it, go skiing, which is my acronym for spending my kids' inheritance. But life is a little bit more complicated now. I still get to play, luckily, or, or my uh, people of today, young people of today, still get to play from about zero to five. They still get to go to school, but then they sort of work into this world of job, 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 and learning for life. And I've been involved in education my entire career. And, you know, all the way back to the early 90s, we, we talked about lifelong learning. But now lifelong learning has truly become a reality and the only survival skill um, 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 required to really be able to fulfill your aspirations from a work and career perspective. And so my provocation to everybody is we have to start thinking about knowledge as a, as a new currency in the world of work. The old currency that um, um, I, is still incredibly valuable and relevant uh, is, the, is the testament, the diploma, the degree, the thing that we hang on the wall that makes my grandmother in or what made my grandmother incredibly proud of me uh, when I earned them along the way and still have that milestone value in our lives. But today, we really need to start thinking about a new knowledge currency. And that's what our session today, Rob's and my session is all about. We have to start thinking about curating a portfolio of ourselves that is sort of the combination of all of our formal credentials and qualifications, as well as those informal, what often get described as micro credentials or other skill events in our lives. We increasingly need to be able to express them to the world, we need to be able to have them described in a way that is understandable by employers or other education institutions. And ideally, they need to be able to be verified digitally so that people can rely upon them as this new knowledge currency, my personal knowledge currency for the world. At RMIT, we realized increasingly that because of that movement towards soft and human skills, and the need for our graduates to be able to evidence and demonstrate the capabilities and competencies they developed beyond their formal program, we launched what we called RMIT Creds. And it, it turned out to be just an, an incredible 
phenomena. It's a university-wide digital micro-credential program. You'll see to the right of the screen that we've had over 100 topics, over 51,000 students, more than 125,000 badges have been claimed and over 9,000 sharings of those badges into other, other platforms across sort of these 11 key capabilities co-created with global partners that included industry bodies, corporations, not-for-profits, professional associations, and, and their value to students and graduates is that they're verified by RMIT. They carry RMIT's brand, but and, and that then allows the student to have sort of a digital web-enabled record of their skills beyond uh, what they've done in their formal program of study. And Rob, what I think is incredible when you look at those numbers of take-ups is none of the creds program were for credit. They were all mm. optional for our students to take, but because they realized the value of those creds as they graduated from RMIT in the labor market, they just proved to be so incredibly popular um, with our students uh, as they headed into the world of work. So Rob, that's a little bit of a background to what shaped my thinking, how I see the world of work uh, moving in the future, why the Bean Center is very focused on a future that works, because I believe we all on the education supply side, on the provider side, have to be willing to keep pace with what's going on with the demand side for the world of work for the sake of our students, our graduates, our communities, our economies, and the world of, of work. So I'll stop sharing there now, and hopefully that's come back to uh, to full screen for us there. Rob, is that right? Certainly has. Thanks, Martin. And and a really interesting, interesting presentation that sets us up uh, for, for a great conversation, I think. So, so as you outlined, you know, this is the, the future as you see it um, is, is these kind of micro credentials and to a certain extent it looks like that that future is already here today uh, as you've outlined with with RMIT's offering and, and I've seen other other offerings similar uh, that exists already but as also as you alluded to it is going to require I suppose that that mind mindset shift uh, from you know that kind of fairly traditional model of, and way of thinking about education so how long do you think it will really take to make that what is you know fairly early adoption of technology in a way of thinking how long that is that that mind shift, mindset shift yeah. going to take it's a terrific question if you'd asked me that midway through 2019 i probably would have said we're looking at maybe a, a seven to ten year transition but of course because of the pandemic all bets are off and every nation around the world that i'm speaking with rob is is seeing the pace of change for the lifelong learner and the ability to support and assist them in getting the skills they need. It's now a, a national imperative for many um, nations. And there's two major forces at work driving it. The first is demand side, um, the way employers are thinking about um, to remain competitive, their need to reskill their existing workforce as well as attracting talent. And according to the World Economic Forum Future of Jobs study, in Australia anyway, 70% of Australian employers are seeking to reskill workers in less than six months, Rob, which means they, they, they can't afford to wait for multi-year traditional master's degrees um, or people going back to undertake more traditional units um, of study. So we're seeing an incredible shift. And 
And interestingly, uh, employers often don't identify universities as places to get those skill top-ups because traditionally we haven't had offerings that would meet uh, what they were looking for uh, from a skill development perspective. But what's also really interesting, Rob, is how much of it is being stimulated directly by government as a response to the COVID pandemic, but also as a response to many of the slides that I put up earlier in the session around the pace of change often being driven through technology. So if you look in the UK, where much of our audience is tuning in today, there's been some really um, interesting recent initiatives from um, the, the government, um, certainly as it relates to, to England, because the, the two that I'm going to speak about are more for England rather than the other three nations of the UK. But if you look in England from the Office of Students, they recently launched their higher education short course trial, Rob, which is a direct um, signal, I believe, to the sector that they are looking, just as we are in Australia, to be able to start funding and codifying short courses primarily designed to drill, to um, sort of develop skill acquisition as part of the formal system. And if you read the Minister's preamble to that announcement, it mirrors much of what I've been talking about. And of course, it goes hand in glove with the government's current initiatives around the lifelong loan entitlement mm -hmm. that's designed to actually allow funding for people at all stages in their life to be able to go back and access the education they need at a tertiary level to be able to remain relevant um, in the in the world of, of work. And um, in Australia, you know, I'm currently co-leading with Professor Dawkins a review of university industry collaboration in learning and teaching. And we're about to present that report to the, the minister, but that's coming off the back of um, $250 million that was put into the Australian system last year by the government directly to fund short 50,000 short course places. Again, this desire for tertiary education providers to play a more active role and the list goes on in Australia. They're currently um, supporting a micro-credentials marketplace. The government is busily working on standing up a national credentials platform that will include both formal credentials as well as informal credentials. Um, and, and so the list goes on. In, in New Zealand, as far back as 2018, they began accrediting micro-credentials um, in units of 50 to 400 hours. And probably my favourite example, um, Rob, is what Singapore is doing where um, through their Skills Future platform, where citizens aged between um, uh, sort of, um, sorry, each citizen aged 25 and over actually gets access to a $500 credit um, every year to go towards their skills related courses. So, so just sort of in summary to your question, Rob, if you think about what's going on in the world of work through employers, an absolute direct intervention from government all around the world to stimulate providers to play a more active role in the provision of micro-credentials and a desperate need for individuals as they live their lives to be able to top up and demonstrate the skills that they've acquired, I think you can see why it's speeding up at a pretty dramatic pace, Rob. Yeah, very much so. And and with the lifelong loan initiative in, in the UK, it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see how how institutions rise to the challenge, I suppose, in order to 
create compelling offerings that, that are attractive to learners. So there's there's a few questions coming in the comments, and please do uh, keep keep submitting them. I'll, I'll um, align them with with uh, some some things we also want to talk about um, where I can. So um, so our purpose today, or, or one of our purposes today as well, is to talk about badging. So how do mm. how does badging relate to this this concept of micro credentials? And, and yeah, what do you think the future holds there? Yeah, like this is the bane of my existence right now is how much the term micro-credential um, and digital badge is being thrown around um, in, in so many different ways, in so many different contexts. And that makes actually policy reform, education provider responses, mapping funding, all the things that we need to do in our systems it's making it really confusing, Rob. And so mm -hmm. I thought what I might share today is just a couple of thoughts about the way that I try to make sense of that in, in, in my work. So I've really anchored in Emeritus Professor Beverly Oliver's work. Um, Beverly was formerly at Deakin University and has just done some fantastic work about around micro-credentials and digital badging. But she sort of defines a micro-credential as being a certification of assessed learning that is additional alternative, complementary to, or a component part of, for, of a formal qualification. And, and I like it because it, it sort of nests it in what we've, we've more traditionally thought about as tertiary ed education. Um, and so a micro-credential in my mind is exactly that. It's a codified, clearly defined piece of learning that is designed to help somebody develop and then demonstrate skills and competencies um, that can either be part of additional to or complementary to other learning that they may have done in their life or are currently undertaking. A digital badge, on the other hand, and this is where I sort of anchor in IMS's definition of a digital badge, they're the custodian of the open badging standard now, is that mm -hmm. digital badges are a visual representation of learning. They're verifiable and shareable and contain detailed information about the achievement and what the recipient did to earn the badge. And that's all expressed through metadata. And Rob, one of the things that I think people get way too hung up on is what the badge looks like and the badge itself. Actually, that's purely a wrapper to where the real power is of a digital badge. And that actually is in the metadata that does exactly that. It, it sort of explains what it is, how it was earned, what skills were taught, how it was assessed, and who issued it and uh, amongst other things. But, and those, it's the value of that metadata is that new currency of learning that makes it um, really powerful. And so, so where the credential, the micro-credential is what you studied and the way that you were assessed, think of the digital badge as being that smart, verifiable data that you can use as an individual to explain it to the rest of the, the world, Rob. Uh -huh, uh huh. And so, so the badge uh, becomes like the, the evidence almost of, of, of the skills, the yeah. knowledge that you've developed. It, it, uh, the, the evidence that the, the description and, and, and perhaps most importantly, um, it, it will describe in more detail if it's done well by the issuer, the mm. actual skills that you've acquired that an yeah. employer or another education institution can make sense of, Rob. Mm -hmm. And and so when talking about skills, then how do we 
define the, the, the skills that are represented by a badge and, and why is that why is it important to do so? And that's the next big frontier, um, being a bit of a Star Trekker fan. You know, it's sort of that's where we've got to go next. Part of the problem we've got now is we're all speaking different languages. And that's because the skills um, are, are, are often defined in different ways by different people at different times. And so one of the things that we need to invest a lot of time and effort in is starting to come up with a common language of what we often think of as or we describe in the work that I do as rich skill descriptors. So it's not just a label, it's not just a tag, it's not just a, um, a, a word like communication or collaboration or problem solving. It actually is a description of what that skill is captured as a unique identifier, Rob. There's a wonderful, wonderful initiative called the Open Skills Network in the United mm -hmm. States that, that people are joining from all around the world and and, you know, I really love what they've got on the homepage of the website when they sort of say much of the data needed to support skills-based education and hiring, it already exists. However, this skill, this skills data is in silos. It's not easily accessible nor machine actionable. So making the switch to skill-based practices for employers, for education institutions is often a very manual and expensive endeavor, Rob. And so... I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what I'm seeing emerge now. Some great examples for the people tuning in. If you go take a look at the ONET initiative um, being sponsored by the Department of Labor in the United States, if you look at the great work that's been done with MZ Skills, um, the Australian government through the Australian Skills Commission uh, has the Australian Skills Classification that they've launched as an open access national skills taxonomy, I think what you're going to start seeing is every nation and ideally globally will start mm. build these, these rich libraries of rich skill descriptors that we can all use then. Employers can use it for hiring. Individuals can use it to describe the skills they've acquired. And education providers can use it to build their courses and, and describe their digital badges and credentials in, in better ways to understand them, Rob. Great. And and you've you've touched there on the the network that exists within badges. Yeah. Not not in terms of the the technology network, I suppose, but the institutional network. And that, that relates to a question we've got um from Dale that's mm -hmm. just come through, who asks, uh, how do you foresee tertiary education providers actively participating in the knowledge economy, not just as individuals, but with industry and and potentially with other universities too? Yeah, and that's very much, thank you for the question, Dale. That's very much the work that I'm doing for the Australian Minister right now. I think providers can definitely need to play an active role in partnering with industry for course design so that the people undertaking the study, what they're, they're um, studying has immediate value in the labour market. And I'm, Dale, I'm talking about here in the space of um, micro-credentials and lifelong learners. Uh, I know that that is not the whole role of all universities, but in the space that I'm describing today, that's that's their role is to collaborate. Those rich skill descriptions too, though, I think they'll, they have a really important part to play in actually the development of those rich skill descriptors and the almost the endorsement of them. If you look at the great work of Western Governors University in the United States through the OSN initiative, I believe they've launched or they've put out into the public domain 
11,000 of their rich skill descriptors uh, out there. I think there's also a role for higher education providers to play more generally in our community to be a more active player in that lifelong learning industry enabled space. Because I know certainly the evidence in Australia is we are not the go-to organization as universities in Australia for industry to reskill their employees. And I I think we we have to play a more active, active role. Thank you for the question. Certainly. And we certainly should be playing a a more active role, in in my opinion, at least. Um, So going going back to your presentation, you mentioned um, a kind of a a portfolio in your presentation. So the notion that a learner has has a portfolio. What view, uh, oh, sorry, what what role do do badges play in, in that portfolio in your view? Yeah, this one I can be pretty brief on. You know, they really, in my opinion, are the new currency of learning. That's the best way I can describe them. Again, going back to OSN, because I think their work is so terrific on their website, they say that they envision a world where learners and workers are empowered to use their skills as currency with the ability to understand the value of their achievements within the employment and education marketplace. I think that sums up their role really, really well. And of course, a portfolio that's expressible into environments like LinkedIn, into Facebook, into um, other labor market um, portals, that's when it starts to get really powerful for the individual because they take control of actually being able to demonstrate in more granular ways the skills that they've developed through their through their life. Okay, thank you. Um, so Martin, I know you're a busy person with lots of projects on the go, but what gets you really excited about badges and, and digital credential networks and what, what's what's occupying your time in this space? Yeah, you know, I, what gets me really excited is just to be part of something that has so much promise and meaning in our um, our future and so needed by in the world, in a, in a COVID recovering world, this has never been more important um, or needed. I'm spending quite a bit of time working with a, a wonderful organization um, called Concentric Sky that actually alongside the MacArthur Foundation and the Mozilla Foundation really developed um, much of the work around digital badging, authored the open badging um, uh, 1.0 standard and contributed significantly to the 2.0 standard. And, and so working with them, they're the sort of the people behind the open skills network. They've also, um, one of their projects is the employment record pilot for the US Chamber of, of, of Commerce. And, you know, in, in addition to sort of them serving 12,000 organizations all around the planet, what gets me really excited about their, their work, Rob, is the ability for us to take individual badges and now turn them into pathways. So mm-hmm. they, their, their technology not only allows us to be able to bring very sophisticated pathways of linking badges within an organization into an infinite combination of qualifications and awards, but they're also doing it because they are based on the Open Badges 2.0 standard, they're able to connect those learning experiences across institutional boundaries, Rob. So it's not only about designing pathways within my organization, I can reach out into the world of all the other Open Badges published in the standard, and I can build them into the pathways for 
my students. And if you just think about the power of that, it allows each individual learning organization to actually collaborate with, build upon, encapsulate, provide choice to, to create a value proposition that we've never really been able to do the way that we are now through the digital badging initiatives and the skilling initiatives that I've talked a little bit about in our brief time together here. Fantastic. That's a powerful proposition indeed. Um, and I'm looking that we've got a, a really healthy number of uh, participants in the in the call today. Um, hopefully that kind of reflects a, a growing interest in badging and, and digital credential networks. So maybe there might be some in the audience thinking about getting into this space uh, if, if they're not there already. So for those that might be, what, can you give me, I don't know, top, the top three tips or th three things to think about um, if, if I was looking to get into the space? Yep, and I'm going to be quick because we're almost out of time. This has been <laughs> such a great conversation. Number one, put the learner at the centre of all you do. Uh, remember that it is absolutely about providing meaningful outcomes, as it always should be for our students. So if you're going to get into digital badging, don't get caught up in all the glitz and glamour. Make sure that everyone that you issue has meaning for the learner and you're very upfront about that. Second is do the heavy lifting, roll up your sleeves, be prepared to do the work so that you're able to describe the skills that have been taught in the badge in a way that is expressible to the world in a way that they can understand it. That will add that value, that extra value to the individual that you've issued the badge to. And the final one is in everything that you do, make sure you're working with technology that's built on open standards and unlocks pathway technology, the ability not to see badges in isolation, but to see them part of connected pathways that build on each other for um, higher and more valuable awards. So, so there we go, Rob. Those are the three things that I would do. I might have crammed two things in to the last <laughs> one, but that's what I would be, uh, be focused on. Well, we're very pleased that you did. And I think in doing so, you may have covered uh, off some of the, the questions that were coming through. So those that asked questions that we weren't able to respond to, uh, thank you for, for attending. Sorry, we didn't get to them. Uh, that's been a really rich discussion, Martin. So thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to speak with you, as I said earlier. Take care, everybody, and, um, and stay safe. And I hope to see many of you again in the near future. Bye for now. And thanks for inviting me, Curio, a wonderful organization to work with.